0: Why is racism a bad thing? Because it's creating in-groups and out-groups within within the human species uh, based on arbitrary lines and because everyone's life should have value. And, And many of the progressives understand that. But then they draw their own lines in different places. So a baby before it's born doesn't have any value, uh, many of them would say. Uh, And even after it's born now, after birth abortion is becoming a big thing in some circles and such. And so Mm. it becomes just arbitrary where you draw the line. So in my view, I think we need to get back to a view where all
1: human lives have value. Welcome to the Lucas Scrobot Show. I'm Lucas Scrobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Today, we are joined by... Dr. Richard Weikart, who is a professor of modern European history at the California State University, Stan and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. He has published five books, including Darwin to Hitler, Evolutionary Ethics, Eugenics, Racism in Germany, Hitler's Religion, and The Death of Humanity and the Case of For Life. Dr. Whiteheart, thank you so much for being with us here on the show today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Now, the real—like, I— just finished up a series on totalitarian cults, totalitarian states, and it doesn't matter the the size of the group to make a totalitarian kind of ideology um, play out. And as I was going through this, I noticed that most of these totalitarian states and totalitarian ideologies consistently attack the family unit. And so as I was doing my research from From Mao to Stalin to small groups in uh, the states, I saw this theme reappearing, and that is when I found your article titled "Marx, Engels, and the Abolition of the Family." Now, I read this article through, and you had already been on my short list. And I got to the end of the article, and I saw your name, and I was like, "That's it." I need to reach out. I need to have you on my show. So I'm just so grateful that you are here today.
0: Yeah, and interesting. One of the things that got me motivated to write that particular article was as I was doing my PhD work in modern European intellectual history, I noticed that a lot of the thinkers that were being fed and uh, celebrated as the great thinkers of Western culture in the 19th and 20th centuries, especially, had uh, not only were trying to undermine the family, which they were, and that's what the article is about, about Marx and Engels in particular and in, in their views on the family. Uh, and it's not just Marx and Engels, too. There's a lot of other socialist thinkers in the 19th century, Rob, uh, uh, Robert Owen and others. But I noticed that there was this broader theme of hatred for authority, any kind of authority structure. Uh, so hatred toward God, hatred and hatred toward the family is part of that uh, sort of more generic you know, hatred and wanting to undermine any kind of authority structure. And so the father, a figure in the family or the uh, the husband and wife uh, as the authority, there's any there's anything that has smack of authority they wanted to undermine.
1: Now, why? Why is that? Why are totalitarian states even like they want authority, they want control. So Why is it that they're trying to undermine? I mean, I I think I can know why. It's a little bit of a leading question. But what is it in those sort of ideologies that is so opposed to other forms of, of leadership or security for individuals? Well, you're right that they end up uh,
0: establishing very often more oppressive regimes than the ones they overthrow. And certainly we've seen that in the case of communist regimes in the 20th century uh, with not only uh, you know uh, police states, concentration camps uh, and such. So they end up establishing these more oppressive regimes than what they start with. Mm. But interestingly, their rhetoric and the way they went over a lot of their uh, people to their cause is by promoting freedom. And if you read Karl Marx's writings, for example, one of the main themes of it is emancipation, freedom, liberation, uh, liberation from the oppression of the capitalist system and such. And so they're promising freedom uh, and they and Marx, even though Marx uh, rejected a lot of the anarchists of his day, like Kropotkin and others, whom he uh, thought were misguided and naive. Uh, Marx did think, and Engels actually uses the term that the state was going to wither away. That was his kind of conception. He thought that these authority structures would vanish. Once he got rid of private property, he blamed everything on private property, Mm. of course. Now, different totalitarian systems would blame different uh, things. Marx was blaming private property. Once you got rid of private property, he thought the state would vanish, ultimately, because he thought that's the only reason that there was
1: authority, was to prop up the the, uh, the 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 uh, capitalist system. Now, to help me out here, and I, I think again, I think I know the answer, but there seems to be two very close cousins. One is communism and, and one would be socialism. And so from my understanding that that communism is really the mechanism that brings about socialism when the group doesn't want the idea of socialism is, is that correct?
0: I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, s- communism is a form of socialism, and it's a way to try to bring about socialism. Communism is usually considered the Marxist form of socialism, since Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and used that term communism for his particular system. Socialism sometimes refers to non, uh, not only to Marxist forms of uh, government, but also to and economies, but also. To uh, anarchism, to uh, democratic socialism, other kinds of socialist uh, ways of trying to, or different ways of trying to achieve socialism.
1: So then, how would you, how would you separate, how would you define the difference between, you know, in today's age, you know, you look at communist China or or other communist states, um, but then you also look at Venezuela, who, where where it's more socialism and you're looking at what's happening in America where 70% of millennials are pro socialism. And, and so in my mind, I always kind of equate them to be very similar. So how would you differentiate the, the, the outplay of, you know, communism versus socialism, or is it kind of like two shades of the same gray?
0: Well, the problem is that, as far as I can tell and can think of, there's really has never been a so fully socialist uh, system that's ever been implemented, except by the communists. <laughs> so it's kind of difficult to under to know if it's even a possibility if that even could happen, uh, because it's never happened. I mean, the the closest we probably come was the UK. Uh, in the post-World War II period, when the Labour Party, which was a fully socialist party in mm. their goals, was elected into office, did have a majority in Parliament and began trying to implement some of their socialist policies. But six years later, they're voted out of office, and so then their op- their policies get overturned uh, by the Conservative Party, and then they sort of the Labour Party sort of went in and out of power. Over the next uh, couple of decades Uh, and by the end of the 20th century, the Labor Party was no longer fully socialist. They were more for a mixed economy uh, and a social welfare state rather than a fully socialist economy. The Scandinavian countries are are probably one of the closer countries to get into socialism, too. But again, they're not socialist countries either. They're a mixed economy. And so people, progressives look to uh, Scandinavia and point to it, but it's not socialist either. So mm. we really don't have any examples of socialist countries except for ones that have done it through very
1: oppressive means. Mm. And it, it, this kind of goes back a little bit. I want to backtrack to a point you said that that Marx and socialism is against private property, which is one reason that they're they're against the family unit because – that passes down that generational wealth, uh, that generational um, inheritance. And if there's no family, well, then who does the wealth belong to? It belongs to the state. Um, But you you, you pointed out that places like uh, the the Nordic countries, they're not really fully – socialistic or socialism isn't fully at play there, but they're really, they're using a lot of capitalistic ideas at the same time. And, uh, I recently had a uh, professor, Dr. Stephen Hicks on the show, and he talked about that. Really, you can look at enclaves of inner cities of America, and you can actually see socialism, uh, at play with government schooling, with government healthcare, with government, um, paychecks, with, uh, Lots of government regulation, government housing. And so he pointed out uh, in a previous conversation that you can actually look at the outplay and the fruit of socialistic ideologies in the inner cities of America right now. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, there's certainly uh – many policies that
0: have, are oriented towards socialism. in fact, interestingly, if you look at Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto and look at the 10 proposals that he gave as sort of the first 10 things that he thinks that should be done to try to move toward a socialist economy, we have some of those already in the United States. So we have certainly moved toward that direction. Uh, one of them, by the way, was a graduated income tax. Uh, that was Karl Marx's idea. Uh, and that obviously got implemented uh, in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so yes, we have moved toward some policies that uh, are pushed toward socialism. But of course, again, we haven't made the, the full move uh, there. Uh, and in, in my view, we're reaping some of, the, uh, some of the negative consequences of some of those policies too, because the, some of the policies you just mentioned uh, in the inner cities of America have, have actually helped to perpetuate poverty rather than trying to alleviate mm. Of poverty. In fact, the two key things, uh, that have done the most to alleviate poverty or have actually polls have, sh- uh, studies have shown that have contributed the most toward, uh, people having the highest, uh, lifetime incomes is education for one. Mm. And so we do have education to try to help people in the inner cities and such. But the other one is uh, getting married and staying married to the same person. Yes. Uh, which again, gets into the family yes. issue that we're just Back talking family. about here. Families are crucial to maintaining people's economic prosperity. Uh, and having a family unit promotes that. But trying to tear down the family unit is simply gonna uh, atomize society and create even more poverty and more problems. Because what's gonna happen when uh, you don't have, Uh, a place to live. Well, if you have a strong family structure, Mm. you can go live with your parents. You can go live with your brother. You can go live with your sister and such. Uh, And again, that doesn't always work. I understand that families are not always living in love and harmony either, Uh, but there's something to fall back on. But, uh, in, in our society, the government is being given all of these tasks and the government can't really handle all of these tasks. Uh, and it becomes immensely expensive to do these things. I mean, if my son uh, loses his job and needs a place to live, you know, he can come live with me, but if the government has to fund it, the government's going to have to spend a lot more money to fund an apartment for him and other kinds of things like that. So uh, the government simply can't handle these functions in the same way that a family can and the family can do it in a loving way too mm. uh, and can give the person the emotional support that the government can't do either. The government just doles out money. They don't can't give the kind of love and compassion and emotional support and, and uh, you know, helping you to try to find a job and well, yeah, they can do that to some degree, but uh, again, there's things in the, that the family unit can do that the government can't do.
1: Now, it, you know, right now in America, there's movements such as black lives matter, which explicitly says that they oppose the family unit and they they oppose you know the the cis gendered white male oppressive system and they want to break down the, the traditional family units and see more like villages uh, of communities where everyone's taking care of everyone and you touched on this in your your article on on Marx and Engels and the evolution of family and it, when i read What you wrote here, it sounds like that's exactly what Marx and Engels wanted and exactly what was being implemented in the Soviet Union, which was we are going to create this uh, utopia of everyone's your comrade. Everyone. It's like, you know, brave new world. But (laughs) in 2020, not 600 years from now. Right. It's this everyone is owns everyone. We're all just one big happy conglomerate um but what baffles me so much is that we have studies just like you you mentioned that if you want to escape poverty it's income don't have babies until you're married and don't get married until you're after 21 or, or wait until you're 21 to have children if you do those three things and you have that family you are going to escape the the grips of poverty by Astounding, astounding numbers. So why why is it that we're still still chewing on these bad ideas that it, it doesn't take it doesn't take a microscope to look through history and and see the results of these ideologies?
0: Yeah, since the nineteen sixties, we've been seeing the negative impacts of a lot of the uh, sexual revolution that has come about, which was an un, uh, Undermining the, the family by uh, promoting yeah. free sex and uh, sex outside of marriage you know all sorts of family structures and such easy divorce and other kinds of things we've we 've been seeing the uh, effects of those and their negative effects to a large degree but I find it surprising that instead of uh, deciding that we 've gone down the wrong path, uh, at least those on the progressive side of the political uh, spectrum are just sort of doubling down and, and thinking we need to go even further uh, down that path and destroy the family even more and you know, now we're at a position where in the United States, less than half of the children are actually being raised by their biological parents. So in many respects, we have undermined the family and destroyed the family uh, structure. We haven't completely undermined it, and destroyed it. Uh, there still are vestiges of it and there still are, are many people who are living in their family units. Uh, but there has been a, a huge amount of destruction and we're living with the uh, emotional problems that these children are carrying with them to school, uh, just the problems that they're going to come on on the heels of that of uh, alcohol and drug dependency and other things and suicide rates and other kinds of things going up. And yet, again, we're just sort of, you know, as a nation, we're just sort of doubling down on let's do it even more uh, instead of recognizing that we've created some huge problems that we need to that we need to turn back and go back to
1: uh, some of the old ways. But it would seem it would seem that I mean, and you right about this in your book The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life you write about how when we when we lose god and when we lose when we lose god we lose morality and when we lose morality we lose any sense of of grounding or meaning or what is moral or immoral because we're just we're just a clump of random occurrences from billions of years and you know we just accidentally came to be. And and you write about that it's not just Marx and Engels that wanted to see these village-like families, but but people have suggested in, in recent history that um you know we shouldn't love our kids, we shouldn't kiss them, we shouldn't hold them, that, you know, if if You know, in a utopian society, kids would be passed around every four weeks to a new mom and a new family and kids would be taken away from their families and educated by the states. I mean, it seems like it's not just that they're doubling down on a bad idea, but it's that they like this bad idea that there's people out there that Mm -hmm. are saying, no, this is actually the the world that we want to live in. Yeah, it's – and I'm –
0: in my book, Death of Humanity, I try to point out the inconsistencies within many of these people too because you're right. Many of them are actually denying that there even is any such thing as love. They see love itself as being simply a – epiphenomenon of uh, evolutionary processes that have produced cooperation, and they try to explain this in a materialistic fashion uh, and such. And so they they dispense with the whole idea of love at all. In fact, Sigmund Freud in the early 20th century, of course, one of the most famous uh, psychologists, uh, said that, uh, love your neighbor as yourself was really a bad idea, you know? And so he actually very forthrightly confronted and challenged the idea of love. Friedrich Nietzsche quite obviously, uh, did that. Friedrich Nietzsche claimed that compassion was a bad thing, you know, that we, we shouldn't have love and compassion for those that are needy and, and poor and sick. Rather, we should try to dominate and oppress and crush, you know, other people. So, uh, but on the other hand there's a lot of progressives today that recognize that's not right there's a lot of progressives today that the reason they hold the progressive
1: views is because they do have some right. sense in which human life has value well and that's what's that's what's confusing it's you know to paint with a very broad brush they would say that the the right is is more hierarchical and 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 more caring about the individual and doesn't really regard those who are at a disadvantage where where they basically paint the left as – or the progressives as people who are more compassionate and caring about the dispossessed and the needy and those who are stacking up at the bottom of society yet at the same time by and large – and this could be a a gross – a very gross. Gross generalization. It seems like those that are on the progressive left are also those who are denying any sort of of truth. I mean, the, the UN stated uh, about in this article about social justice that anyone who believes in absolute truth and justice are are a, are not a good comrade and not good proponents of social justice and we shouldn't seek their support in social justice so it seems to me that that those who are really strong opponents or proponents of social justice at the same time they're saying truth is completely subjective and the issue that i have is if if truth is subjective then where do we have our moral grounding where do we have our our moral underpinning.
0: It's a very question. And of course the word justice itself, as you're suggesting in this phrase, social justice, then really becomes meaningless. It becomes nonsensical. In fact, even talk about social justice. If you're on the, on the same, if at the same time you're using the term, you're on the other hand saying, you know, there is no such thing as, you know, uh, moral truth and stuff. So, Uh, They're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it, too. You know, they're trying to say that, you know, we should be pushing for social justice. But then there really isn't such a thing as social justice. Uh, That thing really doesn't exist. And so uh, one thing I've tried to uh, look at is trying to show that many of these people do have moral standards, moral uh, things that they don't think are really uh, negotiable. Now, sometimes if you try to press them, sometimes they will try to say, I mean, I have a colleague uh, who I've uh, talked about some, of the, some issues like, for example, racism with. And I've sort of pressed him and said, well, uh, isn't racism objectively wrong? Mm-hmm. And his response was, no, it's not objectively wrong. But yet he still wants to fight racism and he's got this passion for fighting racism, but then it isn't objectively wrong.
1: But then if it's you've got to decide, you know, is, is race trajectory <laughs> wrong, or is it not? But if it's not objectively wrong, then why should we care if, if, there, if there is no objective right or wrong, if, there, if, if it's true, what materialists say, that we are just determined by our social or our our, our genetic makeup, and I can't control what I do. I don't have free will then, and, and there's no right or wrong, then why should, why should we care? Why should we care about anything? Why don't we just go on and and live the, the, whatever way that we want to?
0: Yeah. And it seems that when I try to, to pose this to various people who are of that stripe, it seems like their basic response was just, that's just what I care about. And so <laughs> I'm going to push it. So it just becomes, and this, very for, uh, very under, uh, this is why a lot of intellectuals, especially those who are embracing the ideas of Michel Foucault, who's one of the most famous philosophers of the late 20th century, mm. are very forthright about the idea that you know, whatever I believe, I'm going to push for. And it, I don't have to have a reason to believe it because there is no reason. There's no reason for it. There is no objective truth anyway. But I'm going to push for it because it's what I believe in. So it's all about power. And they will, they will admit that. They'll admit that this is all about power. It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing, according to them, that's not my view now. This is, this is according to them. They, they will say it has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with objective knowledge of any sort. It's just that I
1: believe it, and so I'm going to push for it. So now we, we, you've hit on Darwin. You've hit on Marx, Engels. We've hit on Foucault. You've hit on Nietzsche. So where do where do these ideas spring from? From your opinion, is it is it from Darwin's theories that then have extrapolated into postmodern uh, deconstructionist uh, ideologies? And I mean, didn't didn't Foucault commit suicide? Was that yeah, his death? In uh, thinking about where these ideas came, yeah, Foucault did commit
0: suicide. Uh, no, excuse me, Foucault did not commit suicide. Uh, he died of HIV. Okay. Uh, so, uh, he, he was very, he frequently
1: uh, wrote about, I th- believe you mentioned
0: in your book he, how he was, he promoted with. suicide and talked about setting up suicide clinics. And he did, he did, a, uh, he did attempt suicide as a young man on a couple of occasions or and, and such and, and, uh, thought about it, but he never, he didn't actually, he actually died of HIV, uh, which he contracted because he didn't believe that HIV was an objective reality. Here's another interesting thing. Okay. You know, he, he, he claims that HIV, he thought oh. that HIV was a, uh, you know, a plot by the government and by the status quo to try to, you know, suppress homosexuality and such, since he was a homosexual, practicing homosexual. And so, uh, he didn't take it seriously because he thought it wasn't objectively true. And then of course he ends up dying of it, finding out that yes, objective reality does come to roost, you know, objective reality has impacts. Getting to your earlier question though, about two, about, um, where this all comes from. Mm. I don't think we can trace it to any one particular person or individual. I, I, In my book, Death of Humanity, I go back to the Enlightenment period, although you could probably go back a little bit earlier too with a few thinkers. But the Enlightenment, I think, is when these ideas started to become uh, pretty fashionable among intellectuals. That is the idea, ideas uh, that uh, things are determined by either your environment or your, by your biology that there's no free will that there's and again this wasn't even a main it was not even in the, in the enlightenment a mainstream idea it was what's called the radical enlightenment uh and so but there were enough people pushing these ideas and many of them were materialists people that rejected the idea that there's any kind of god rejected the idea that there's any kind of spiritual realities and such and so uh we just all became a machine there was a, a famous book in fact that was written in 1747 by Julien de la Matrie, a prominent materialist during the Enlightenment period. His book was called Man the Machine. Mm. So, just defines humans as just being a machine.
1: So, from this, the, the fruit of this, I mean, if you're looking at Foucault, if you're looking at um, what we're seeing today you know i've been thinking about this and talking about this for a few years now which is starting starting with the premise that we actually have agency and i, I kind of walked backwards into this my 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 background is is not in philosophy, philosophy by any stretch of the imagination uh, i kind of walked walked backwards into this even when i was starting this this podcast um it, it was based in this idea that we have agency to own the future. We have agency to make decisions for our life, and that—that that fatalism, or that th- the belief that we do not have any sort of free will—that um, whether it is that God is completely uh, uh, controlling us, or from the ideas of of materialism, that we are nothing but neurons firing and we can't control ourselves, that these are the, the ideologies that are leading people that are leading the youth of today. And it's across the globe. You know, I I have so many conversations with, um, Westernized Arabs or Arabs who have had a great inundation of Western culture or or Western education, and when I have these conversations with them, I'm I'm shocked at the level of secular humanistic belief systems and ideologies that are actually underneath the current, even though they might claim something on the outside. They may, might claim that they're Muslim on the outside. um everything that they talk about. It really seems to to harken back to everything that we're talking about across the globe today, as far as secular humanism goes, and and, and determinism, and this idea of fatalism, and then at the same time, I see this great great movement of of nihilism and existentialism, uh, depression, anxiety, and I can't help but I couldn't help but think, like, there's something going on here. And then as I've been reading your work and other works, seeing that really it is the denial of free will that has led to so many of these destructive ideologies. This denial of free will, meaning that life is meaningless, has led us to this place of life having no meaning. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, precisely. Or once you to de- once you deny that there is any, uh, you know any mind in the universe you know that things are just come about by materialistic processes chance processes then really yeah you are left with no kind of meaning or purpose in fact here's an interesting uh, example of this that seemed really bizarre to me i was at a holocaust conference once since i've done a lot of work about hitler and the nazi era and such and the keynote speaker who was a pretty well known holocaust historian was giving this talk and and he started talking about how the universe is 15 billion years old and he went through this evolutionary story about how humans arrived and you know and basically he was talking about it happening all by chance processes mm. and and things like that and and i couldn't figure out where he was going with this And this is a holocaust conference after all so but anyway he finally gets to, to talking how this connects to the holocaust and he said you know the, the end of it, the end of that was didn't last a long time it's just a very short thing but he said you know you know, millions of years, you know, millions or billions of years from now, you know, life is going to be extinct and such. And he said, our task is to make sure that life goes extinct later rather than earlier. And I thought, well, given what you just shared with us about the meaninglessness and purposelessness of the universe, what difference would it make? Hitler slaughtered 6 million Jews, or if he'd slaughtered the entire human race, uh, you know, there's no meaning and purpose in the universe, then there's no meaning or Mm. purpose in life or death.
1: Mm. And so why, like, where, where do these, I, I think we've kind of hit on it a little bit, but with these ideas, it's not just meaninglessness that, that comes forth. It's not just this nihilism, but really what comes forth in what you lay out in your book, the death of humanity is it's from this idea of Darwin and evolution or from the idea of really of of materialism as you've put it it's not just one person that has developed this ideology but from that we get well the individual doesn't matter from that we get we should have assisted suicides from that we get well it's actually quite noble for you to kill yourself from that we get it's immoral not to abort down babies with down syndrome from that we get, well, we should have, you know, post birth, birth abortion legal up to, you know, however many days from that we get these, these, you know, obscure metrics of how we should measure whether a person is a person or not. And like, how do we, how do we combat that? I mean, it's not, these, these are very small ideas that seem to spiral into, uh, Crazy sorts of conclusions, what is it that that we can combat that with in in this modern day and age well you know i think you're you're right that once you
0: decide that life has no meaning or purpose and such and that's your your philosophy that mm. it does then even though you may not live completely consistently to that and again i try to show that there are impacts that it has on the way that we think and and operate and deal mm. with human life and the value of human life so uh and then it becomes in my view completely arbitrary as to where you draw the line you know that who is Who is in the in-group of humans that are deserving of protection and who is in the out-group of uh, other, you know, perhaps even homo sapiens that are not in the group that are protecting? And and again, it becomes very arbitrary. You know, so you get these people that are fighting racism. Why is racism a bad thing? Because it's creating in-groups and out-groups within – Within the human species uh, based on arbitrary lines and because everyone's life should have value. And and many of the progressives understand that. But then they draw their own lines in different places. So a baby before it's born doesn't have any value, uh, many of them would say. Uh, and even after it's born, now after birth abortion is becoming a big thing in some circles and such. And so mm. it becomes just arbitrary where you draw the line. So in my view, I think we need to get back to a view where all human lives have value, and where we understand that, me- that life does have meaning and purpose, and that meaning and purpose isn't just built upon whether or not that person has particular characteristics of, let's say, uh, rationality or ability to plan the future or things like that. That some uh, bioethicists are. Now now saying that that's what makes a human being a person. There's a so-called personhood theory, which is the idea that there's a difference between a human being and a person. And they would say, persons are the ones that have value. Just being a human being doesn't give you value. And so my view is we need to get back to where we believe in human equality, that humans are equal. So a person who's mentally disabled is just as valuable
1: a life as myself or any other human being. And how going back to the people wanting to destroy the family unit, it seems like they're time and time again throughout history people are are working to destroy the family unit and I can understand from you know maybe a a christian judeo world view of why the family unit is important but what i I think maybe I don't understand is why do why do these movements see the family unit or see a a mom and a dad as such a a threat to society?
0: Well, I think there's, it's a comp, that's a very complex question and I'm not sure there's any easy answer to that. I, a couple of things that I think, and again, I can't necessarily prove this, but I think in part it might be because in rebelling against uh, God uh, as being a, God is a father figure in a sense, and so in rebelling against God, they want to rebel against those authority structures that they see mirror His authority, or you know are reminiscent of His authority. And so they see any kind of authority as being a bad thing. And so the family structure does have authority in it. Uh, so that's one kind of explanation. I'm not sure that's a full explanation mm. of it, but I think that's one uh, way of thinking about it uh, about why they're wanting. But I think. Other thing I think you pointed out earlier too is that uh, the family structure uh, does uh, support elements of the status quo, the uh, the economic structure of society, and other kinds of things, is sort of the bedrock of society. And so, if you're wanting to, if you're wanting to completely overturn. Uh, all the values of society need to try to get rid of the parental influences on children. In fact, that's actually a very key point that many uh, secular thinkers from the enlightenment on have made themselves. So, I mean, that's pretty, I think a pretty solid point that they don't want parents influencing their children.
1: So why? Because
0: parents are going to carry on a lot of the same values that they have. And they're wanting to undermine those parents' values because they want a more radical position to be the whole sway, so they want control of children that's part of the issue and
1: i i'm i'm still baffled i'm still baffled like it's it's just that they want control you're saying you're saying that but let me give let me give an
0: example of this let me give a key example of this robert owens who was one of the leading socialists in the early 19th century pre-marxian socialist Uh, He was from England. He was a factory owner himself. He tried to set up uh, some utopian communities. One of them was in Indiana uh, called New Harmony. Uh, It actually broke apart because they didn't have enough harmony (laughs) there in New Harmony. But in any case, (laughs) Owen said there were three main evils in society, God and religion, that's one. Mm. Two, private property. He was a socialist. And thirdly, the family. And he very forthrightly Uh, argued in his books that children needed to be taken away from their parents because parents were pernicious influences on their children, you know, by teaching them religion, by teaching them, you know, uh, the the values of private property and things like that. And so he he very forthrightly uh, uh, promoted the idea that children should be taken away from their parents because their parents were bad influences
1: on them. But these, so in some ways it's like, well, that sounds so outlandish but there's been the the Harvard Symphonium that that states that parents should not be able to homeschool their children. Right now we're we're looking at this this Marxist, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist movement in America that is saying that the the communist or the, the the capitalist system is corrupt and evil that there shouldn't be private land over ownership that that kids should be taken away from their parents there's it, it seems like in some ways it seems like the the atrocities of the 20th century are, are so far behind us this idea that um, you know, what happened with Mao, what happened with the the Chinese Cultural Revolution, even what happened, you know, 200, 300 years ago with the the French Revolution and the, the reign of terror, that those things are so ancient and so far away from us. And yet we're seeing the same language persist today. We're seeing the same movement persist today. Why, why won't we, why don't we want to do away with these catastrophic ideas.
0: Yeah, you know, many of the people that embrace, you know, the progressive left have a false view of human nature. And I try to deal with this too in my book, The Death of Humanity, where I talk about some of these issues, but they basically see human nature as being good and, but corrupted by the systems. So the problem is all, the system, mm. the economic system, especially in many of the views on the left, but also political system and, and, and family structure and other – so every, all you – know, if you ask what is the – uh, what produces all the ills of society, it's – they see it as systematic – which is why you get all this talk too, by the way, today about things like systemic racism and things like that. the problem is all the system. The problem is not individuals. Mm. So individuals they think are basically good. And if you can just get them out of the system, then they'll do good things. They'll be cooperative. They'll, they'll help one another. They'll, you know, they'll promote each other's interests. They'll be, you know, loving and compassionate and kind and all these other kinds of things that they're that they're hoping will take place. But of course, the irony is that when they start trying to undermine things like the family and private property and other things like that, where then does that authority reside once you take it away from the family and once you take it away from business owners and things like that? It resides in the government. Mm. Now, again, many of these leftists, especially on the far left, think wrongly that the government's ultimately gonna vanish once you get rid of private property and the family and all these, that the, the government will vanish too. And you'll just have an, anar- you know, anarchist society where everyone works in cooperation, harmony and love uh, with one another. But what the irony is that, no, the government then becomes the authority and becomes the oppressor instead of, you know, the economic system. And, you know, when I talk with Marxists and and anarchists and people who are on the far left, you know, I admit there are there are injustices. There are <laughs> problems with the capitalist system. It's not like it's a it's a one. It's a completely wonderful system. The reason it's not a completely wonderful system is because of people, because there are people involved in it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one I, there's one person who I forgot who said this, but one person said that democracy is the worst possible system imaginable except for all the others. <laughs> you know, so, so <laughs> the problem is that there are people involved in all of these systems, but they don't They don't believe people are the problem. They believe the system is the problem.
1: That is all that we have for this first part of our conversation with Dr. Richard Weikart, who wrote the book, The Death of Humanity. Stay tuned for the second hour of our conversation, where we wrap this up specifically with how you can combat nihilistic ideologies in your life.